This is CliffCentral.com. Over the course of the last few weeks of Decrypto, we've had a lot of questions, and we thought it would be a good idea to put together an episode with uh, Ran Noiner and with Ricardo Spagni to try and figure out some of the loose ends that people wanted questions answered for. And we've managed to come up with a couple of emails here, and we're going to put these to Ran and to Ricardo and see what their answers are. The Decrypto series is sponsored by Luno, Africa's first cryptocurrency platform. All right, Heather sent us an email. She said, I was very unlucky or stupid, and I bought some Bitcoin and Ethereum in December last year. So I am down a lot and have been for most of the year. I don't think she's just talking about her balance. She's probably also down in terms of mood. Should I keep hodling or just get it out now? I know that you've said throughout the series that uh, day trading is not the point, but I'm wondering if there's any hope of making money or at least getting my original investment back at any stage. Desperate Heather, over to you, Run. If I, if I had a, a dollar for every time I got an email or an SMS like that, I'd have a lot of Bitcoin at the end of the day. Um, so let me start off by saying that I'm not your financial advisor, and this is not financial advice, and I'm not here to give financial advice, but I am going to share my views, and then you can make a, a, a call either way. I think the first question you've got to ask yourself is why you got into this industry in the first place. If you got in because you wanted to make a quick buck, well, you've seen how that's panned out. And it's not going to happen. And so now you've got to make a decision. And the decision is whether you really fundamentally believe in how this technology is going to disrupt the world. Specifically, you spoke about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Do you fundamentally believe that Bitcoin is going to revolutionize the value transfer mechanism in the world? Do you believe that smart contracts and everything related to them is going to revolutionize and disrupt various industries in the world? If you do, which by the way, I do. Then I think to sell now when the market is at a 12-month low or an 18-month low, whatever the numbers are, I think that would be futile. And without giving anybody financial advice, I'm buying now because I think that the market is oversold. Maybe it will go down. Maybe it will, it will it'll go up again. I don't care because I understand the fundamentals of a technology. I understand the industries that it can disrupt. Mm-hmm. And in my view – for me, it sounds cheap. And therefore, for me, I'm buying now. So should you be selling? Probably I wouldn't sell. Well, Ricardo's gone and turned all of his, uh, all of his crypto into, into um, cars. And watches. And watches. watches. Yeah. yeah, it's a stable store of value, right? <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> I've been in a car with you and there's nothing stable about it. All right. Um, <laughs> Ricardo, i got one for you here. Uh, this is from Shelley. She says... I've enjoyed the series. I'm not an expert, but you guys made me feel a little less dumb about cryptocurrency. There is just one thing I still don't understand. What is Bitcoin Cash and how did it come about? What is the difference between it and regular Bitcoin? These are all excellent questions. Um, And the truth is so many people don't know. In fact, I think half the people involved don't know. The unfortunate reality is when it comes to consensus amongst humans, we're pretty bad at it. We think that we're good at arriving at... uh, sort of unified view of the world, but we're not. And so a couple of years ago, there was a a great deal of um, strife and conflict within the Bitcoin community about how Bitcoin should scale and what specific technologies should be used. 
And because of this disagreement, a um, a minor portion of the community, and and I don't mean minor in a disrespectful sense, but a minor in terms of number um, portion of the community split off and decided to um, create this thing called Bitcoin Cash, which they believed uh, more firmly represented their worldview of how Bitcoin should scale. And they spent a lot of time trying to convince people that Bitcoin Cash was indeed the true vision of what Bitcoin should be. And subsequent to all of that mess, um, they've now split again into Bitcoin Cash SV and Bitcoin Cash ABC or Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin ABC. And basically what you've got is a very fractured community that can't even decide on their own internal worldview, much less how they think everyone else should see things. And because of that internal strife, because of the disconnect, even within that community, I typically would advise people that unless you are um, strongly technical and have a firm idea of what's going on and why you would choose to park money in that or play around with it, it's better to just avoid it um, and just use normal Bitcoin. Hmm. Can I can I just add something there? I mean, of course. Can I add something there? So for me, I, look, I'm not going to comment on whether I think Bitcoin Cash is good or Bitcoin is better or which one is is real, etc. But I think fundamentally we need to understand that the fork or being able to br- to agree with people until a certain point, and when you don't agree with them, you can break away and almost fork the technology. Hmm. Now, when a technology forks, the current holders or the the Bitcoin holders before the Bitcoin Cash fork. The people that had Bitcoin got one-to-one ratio of Bitcoin cash to Bitcoin, which means that effectively, if me and you go out on a journey, mm-hmm. and at some point in the journey, we don't agree on something and we decide to go our separate ways, instead of us parting through a fight, basically, I get, I'm not going to say shares, but value in your chain and you get equal value in my chain, which means that we don't really give up anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me is a very amazing mechanism of open source projects and specifically of blockchain because it allows you to break away and still keep value in it's, the, it's in not the a, whole chain. It, it's not a zero sum game and it's not a, a winner takes all situation, Correct. right? And actually, then the people who are in Bitcoin from that time before the fork have Bitcoin cash. They also have an interest in not seeing that go down the toilet. Correct. And that for me, the reason why I like that is because it says, look, we don't have to agree on anything yeah. and maybe I'm going to be right and maybe you're going to be right. Let's try. Mm. Now, in this case, in the Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin case, it got very emotionally heated. But in some cases, it doesn't need to be emotionally heated. Now, sometimes we say, look, both routes may work. We're not sure. This is a new technology. And we should actually fork this at each try a different way. And when we try a different way, one may work and the other may not work. Or they both may work. And we both benefit because no Mm. one loses anything. Because you get coins in the new chain as well, in the fork chain as well. All right, another question for you, Ron. Um, thanks for the show. I'm currently invested in VeChain and have a VeChain wallet. I need your help in figuring out how much my investment is currently worth and how to work it out going forward. I invested when it was sitting at five rand a coin. However, they've moved to a different form now, and it's only worth one cent. My total is 14,485.3 VET at the moment, and I have no idea how to work out what that's worth. Warren. Okay, so um, I, I must be honest. I'm I'm uh, I'm guilty as charged. Here. I don't know VeChain very well, but I could try and look up on a website called Coin Market Cap. On Coin Market Cap, you get the values as they're trading on exchanges of most tokens. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and let's have a look at what VET is actually trading at. So, All right, Warren. So this is like when you throw your dice and <laughs> we'll see what, okay, what it's worth. So I'm looking it up. I'm on coinmarketcap.com and I've gone to VET, mm-hmm. which is VeChain. And VeChain today is trading at half a cent or point. Point zero zero four six three zero, so times that by fourteen thousand. It doesn't sound like it's a pretty picture. Shame. I'm sorry, Warren. That said, maybe the chain split or something along those lines. I must say, I haven't been following V Chain. All right, uh, Ricardo, can someone trace my transactions back to me using my Bitcoin key? I mean, I know with you we've discussed privacy in Monero for a, for a long time, and we, we've gone into the idea of of how much of your information you do and don't have to share. So, Alan wants to know, does the key contain any personal information? Yours in paranoia, Alan. So, your Bitcoin private key is, in and of itself, doesn't contain any identifiable information. Um, It's just a long number that uh, has a public key attached to it. Um, And that private key lets you spend your Bitcoin, and that's kind of all it does. Hmm. Uh, The Hmm. issue is that due to the the structure of the Bitcoin ledger and the fact that a ledger by necessity shows the movement of um, of a currency and everywhere it's gone to, mm-hmm. it introduces mm-hmm. a an element of traceability. Let's use a specific example. So let's say that, that paranoid Alan um, goes and decides, you know, Bitcoin's doing really well. He's going to sell a little bit of his Bitcoin. So he transfers a little bit of Bitcoin to Luno and he sells it on Luno. Now, the issue there is the act of transferring it to Luno is publicly traceable. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and they can most people that, uh, that use any form of blockchain analysis um, tooling can identify Luno's wallets so they know that you've transferred it to Luno. That's kind of where the link stops in terms of what is publicly accessible. But now they've identified that Someone has transferred this money to Luno and they can go if they're law enforcement and get a subpoena and go to Luno and say, Luno, who is this person that deposited money? So, so Luno have to comply with various forms of regulation. And because of that, you introduce this element of traceability that, uh, that law enforcement, for example, can, can gain access to. However, it's more than that because again, as humans, we're very bad at protecting our data. And so you might go and use um, a, a service or, uh, you know, let's say you want to go and get free money and there's a faucet or there's um, a game that you can play where you get some, you have the possibility of getting some free Bitcoin. And what you don't realize is by putting your Bitcoin address there, uh, maybe on a forum or whatever, that you're you're creating links between your real world identity uh, maybe the IP address of your computer and uh, your Bitcoin address. And even though your Bitcoin address changes the whole time in your wallet, there's still this line that traces between all of them. And so you're constantly just adding little bits of information that eventually reveal your identity and uh, link your identity to your Bitcoin addresses. All right. Um, one question that you could both have a go at here. Um, if a store accepts Bitcoin as a form of payment – how would I even go about doing that, says Godfrey? It sounds really simple, but, I mean, for a lot of people, this is not as obvious as it seems. Yeah, so I think, first of all, you need to understand where where are your Bitcoin being stored. And I'm, I'm assuming that, that if a store accepts Bitcoin and you're walking around with your mobile phone, your your tokens are being uh, stored on some kind of wallet that has some kind of mobile phone functionality or capability. If that's the case, then you should have a 
button that says send Bitcoin. It, you'd, have probably, right. you'd probably have two buttons. One says receive and one says send. On the button that says send, it would then ask you for the address. Now, typically, it would also give you a little camera with a QR code. And the merchant would have the same QR code. And what you do is you direct the camera at the QR code, take a picture of the QR code, and then, then the, the wallet would know where to send it to. And then you just type in the amount. There are some systems that I've seen where the QR code actually already has the amount. So you go to pick and pay and it gives you a QR code. You take a photo of the QR code. It talks to your wallet and it actually sends that amount. So I think the general rule of thumb is go to the wallet and look for the send function Mm -hmm. and then look for the merchant's receive address. And just like if you were sending Bitcoin to a friend, imagine the merchant's your friend. Okay. All right. Um, For both of you as well, I read, this is from Jacob. Jacob says, I read that Bitcoin was conceptualized by a guy called Satoshi Nakamoto. Was it really just one guy or was it a group? And does he or they make any commission from the transactions? Thank you for an interesting series, Jacob. It's really interesting because the amount of effort involved in creating something like Bitcoin is it's monumental. Bitcoin is this delicate balance. I mean, just from a theoretical perspective, is a delicate balance between incentives and game theory and cryptography um, and economics uh, that someone had to design and get right, or at least pretty solidly right, like at their first first go. Um, and then there's the software that you also need to write. And so there is a a large number of people, of clever people, who believe that Satoshi Nakamoto must have been a group of people because the chances of it being one multi-skilled, multi-talented person who understands all these different things and can also program is small. That's not to say that the, the possibility is ruled out. Uh, there certainly have been people gifted enough to do so, but it's unlikely. Um, whether they earn commission, no, they don't. Uh, the only people that earn commission from processing transactions are Bitcoin miners and they run specialized equipment. They burn a bunch of electricity to do so. And thus they're able to prove that they've done an amount of work. So they've, they've used up some energy in order to process those transactions and they get paid a small transaction fee for doing so. So why the anonymity? I think that um, Satoshi, whether it was a group or an individual, was wise in choosing to be anonymous because um, if you're going to create a decentralized technology that cannot be stopped, um, then you need to make sure that you don't have an identifiable founder because otherwise that's your first point of attack if uh, you want to take down that technology. And uh, Bitcoin is... I don't think it's anti-government, but it definitely is disruptive, and it takes control away to some degree uh, from governments, and that alone is disruptive enough that uh, if Satoshi was an identifiable person, um, there would definitely be agencies that would be after him. So, Ron, you haven't met him? I, I always thought it was Ricardo, but I mean, he's uh, now he's now thrown me completely. <laughs> he's now he's now thrown me completely off. Look, I've often thought, you know, if I was Satoshi, what, would I, at some point, you know, reveal myself? And you got to think that this group or this person had to be so wise to say, you know, you could derail the whole thing if you revealed who the person was. There is a a guy called Dr. Craig Wright, who's an Australian. I think he's an Australian um, uh, uh, scientist. 
And um, he's now, you know, he claimed or claims that he is Satoshi. And he's got this uh, pseudonym now. We call him Fake Toshi. Um, everyone calls him Fake Toshi because he, we, like, I think it's so pretty obvious that he's not Satoshi. Yeah. <laughs> R- Ricardo, I, I have a question for you on that point. What, what actually is in it for Satoshi? I mean, if he, he's, not earning, he's not earning commission on this thing. Mm. Why would you, if, if you were Satoshi, why would you combine and assemble a whole team of economists and game theorists and, and scientists? What's in it for you? Yeah, it's, I, I think that so, – so a theory that I've heard uh, by – again, by some clever people who um, I, I respect is that Satoshi could have been a group of mathematicians – who worked at the NSA and were frustrated in the post-Snowden world by um, uh, all the bad things that were happening. And they had come up with this idea for a disruptive technology and decided to put it out there. Um, and I think that that's as good a reason as any. It's almost like a like a Buddha or a Jesus type move. You know, you kind of throw some philosophy in there. In this case, there's some real technology to back it up. And you just see what happens to the humans. And, and there might have been good intentions. There might have been no intentions at all. Maybe it was just, yeah. um, I'm going to try this. Now, now, Ricardo, does Satoshi own any Bitcoin? I mean, there's, there is a Genesis block that was mined. Who does that first block, the Genesis block, actually belong to? Whether the Genesis block is redeemable or not is a, is a, is a tough question. Um, but straight after the Genesis block, the, the next couple of thousand blocks at the very least um would most likely have been mined by satoshi um it's unlikely i mean there were other people that were aware of bitcoin's launch he did announce it on a public mailing list but apart from people like hell finney i don't know how many actually paid attention Hmm. um so it's it's entirely possible that satoshi owns um a bunch of bitcoin it's possible that those private keys are lost it's probable that they're lost, or at least some of them. Um, it's also possible that Satoshi was Halfini and Halfini is subsequently passed away. So, you know, I mean, there's whether, whether the Satoshi Nakamoto individual or group still exists, whether they have access to any of their private keys, whether they did indeed mine a bunch of Bitcoin or not, is all stuff that we currently do not know. But I mean, just for the record, there is a, there, there's a lot of Bitcoin stashed up in accounts that haven't moved since the first time Bitcoin was mined. So you've got, I don't know the exact number, but you're talking about over 100,000 Bitcoin sitting in, this, in, these, in these addresses, which as you know with Bitcoin, the address values are visible to everyone. And those address values haven't been, um, uh, haven't been ever touched. So one of the one of the things you know we said one of the proofs that that the journalists have said to to Craig Wright to fake Toshi is it you know if you claim you're Satoshi move one coin from that address to that address I mean you know we've got, we've got to make an assumption that Satoshi mined the first couple of blocks or you know and for some yeah. reason he hasn't been able to do it and that's where he's got the name fake Toshi hmm. I, I think that for some reason is pretty obvious it's because he's not Satoshi. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. A very mysterious way to end this uh, series. And thanks for your participation, both of you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decrypto, brought to you by Luno, the best platform to become educated on all things crypto. Luno makes it safe and easy to buy, store, and learn about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Just visit luno.com 
forward slash decrypto and sign up to redeem the exclusive promo code if you've listened to this series. This is cliffcentral.com.